And you can turn with me, if you are sticking around, to the book of James. Again, we are in James chapter 5, the last chapter. We are closing in on the end of our series, Faith in Gear. So you can turn with me now there. We're starting at verse 7 and going through verse 12 this morning. Before we do that, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, I'm just aware right now of the need for your strength. And not just me, but for everyone in this room. Lord, there are a hundred things that can distract us. Dozens of things that probably have distracted us this morning. But Lord, we pray right now that we do not want to be distracted. We want to give You our attention as fully as Moses gave You His attention on the mountain. As fully as Moses face to face with the glory and the power and majesty of all that You were. We want to give You that kind of attention right now. And God, we need Your grace for that. We don't have the capacity in our own strength to do it. And so we lay down our self-sufficiency. We lay down our own thoughts that we can somehow reach inside ourselves and, and, and pull up the level of concentration necessary. We, we humble ourselves before You, God, and we ask that You would send Your Spirit, that You would fill us. God, that You would open our eyes to Your truth. That we would see Your glory. That we would commune with You. And we do that in the hope that Your Word will now be preached. So glorify Yourself in the midst of Your people in the reading and preaching of Your Word. All for the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, look with me at James chapter 5, verse 7. Hear the holy and authoritative Word of God. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, such you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Word of the Lord, may He write its truth upon our hearts. Well, if you remember last week, or if you weren't here last week, to give you a quick preview of where we were, last week we saw James 
do what we called an apostrophe, right? He was, he was writing his letter to his audience, and in the middle of the letter, in the middle of his point, he paused and turned his attention to a group of people not present, to a group of unbelieving, wicked, wealthy people. And he, and he spoke some judgments against that. Now, in that context, in verse 7, that's what links into our passage this morning. James now takes his attention from those unbelievers and turns it back to his main audience. So he's addressing believers again. And he wants them to be assured, as much as he wanted to stir up repentance in unbelievers last week, this week he wants to stir up encouragement for the body of Christ. He's doing that by two ways. So He's trying to encourage, and he's also showing that this suffering that's been happening, it's kind of been a, a theme throughout the letter, right? Go all the way back to chapter 1. Consider it pure joy when you face trials, suffering, difficulty, hardships of many kinds. He's bringing encouragement to that context. And he's also starting the conclusion of the letter. Now, most people maybe couldn't pull that off. You're trying to go back to the beginning, tie in a theme you've been carrying through the whole letter, and also begin the conclusion. But I think we see in this, this morning James's skill as an author, his skill as a writer. And so as he does that, He's beginning, to, he's beginning to land the plane, if you will. He's beginning to tie all the loose ends back together. He's very carefully crafted the letter to accomplish both those tasks. So going back to James 1-2, considering it pure joy when you face various trials, he's now talked in the context of this letter about what those trials were, right? They're not just various. He's spoken to kind of specific examples. Now he's speaking one more word of encouragement to those who are suffering. And he's also preparing us for his concluding comments. As he's done that, here's when the context of his encouragement in this immediate passage. In the midst of those judgment woes of last week, remember what he said? He said, God hears. He told the people who were oppressive, you need to know that those who you oppress, God hears their prayers. That's a warning to them, but it's an encouragement to us. This morning he adds to that. It's not just that God hears. It's that Jesus is coming. So he hears and he's coming. Last week we heard the promise that God hears those prayers. Today he combines that with an extra dose of sustaining grace. God hears and he's sending his son. He's sending Jesus to return. He even says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Kind of paraphrase it as saying, we live in the last days. Now, the last days are inaugurated and start as soon as Christ comes, as soon as Jesus takes on flesh, as soon as the Word of God becomes enfleshed, becomes a man. That's the beginning of the last days, and the last days have been carrying out, and that's James's point. What does it look like now that that's true? He promises that God hears the cries of his people. It's kind of, kind of an echo back to, to Exodus. Remember that? For 400 years. The Israelites are in slavery and captivity. And I said, God heard the cries of His people. What happens is God hears and He comes and delivers and He judges. So James is saying again here. And so he wants us to consider that and he wants us to think. When Christ arrives, when He returns, He will come as both deliverer and judge. So he wants us to be encouraged and He wants us to be ready. 
He wants those who anticipate the coming of Christ to be prepared for his arrival. That's what he's doing in this this part of the passage. He's trying to stir up within us a particular attitude, a particular disposition, a particular lifestyle. And I think he shows us three characteristics in today's passage. What does it look like for those who are encouraged and specifically for those who are ready, who are prepared for Christ and His second coming? The three things are pretty simple and you see them probably pretty apparently in the passage. We need to be patient, we need to be steadfast, and we have to be trustworthy. The three things we're going to explore this morning about that attitude that James wants to extend to us to be ready for Christ. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take the last one first. And I don't really have a good reason for this other than the fact that verse verse 12 right there sort of stands in the middle. It's sort of a hinge verse. It actually kind of connects this passage with the next one. And so some translations have it with this section. Other ones will have it with another section. And so it's just kind of an awkward conclusion that we're going to talk about the rest of the morning. So I'm going to take it and talk about it first so we don't end awkwardly. That's all, that's all the reason. Nothing else, nothing fancy. He stops and ends by saying, be trustworthy. Prepare for the return of Christ by being trustworthy. In James 5.12 he says, but above all my brothers do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, James isn't talking about profanity, right? There's nobody probably in the church that he's specifically thinking has a potty mouth and he's addressing in that way. That's not what he's saying when he says, don't swear. He's actually mirroring Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you lined up the two passages, the one in Matthew and the one here in James, They're almost identical. The idea is James wants us to be trustworthy. I think the reason he actually talks about this topic right here, which sometimes commentators kind of look at it and wonder, why all of a sudden is he talking about warning to the rich, encouragement to the poor and the suffering, patience and suffering, Jesus is coming, and don't swear oaths. And then he's going to continue and say pray. It seems like it's a strange spot to put in. I think the reason he does it here is because he knows... In the last days, if people are really convicted it's the last days, they might be tempted to dishonesty. You think about that. If you, if you think the world is ending, does that maybe kind of unhinge your ethical principles? You know, before I wouldn't have stolen, but now that the world is ending, I'm going to go raid Costco for all the goods that I can. Because the world is ending. I think that's part of what he's doing here. It's a sense that There is an imminent nature to Christ's return. Be ready. The Son of Man will return. And so be trustworthy. I think there's also this sense, if if Christ is returning, I can make a lot of promises about what I'm going to do in the future. I promise, one day I will get to that. I'm never going to have to obey that promise. I'm going to have to fulfill that. Jesus is coming. James is warning against this sort of flippant attitude. I'm going to make bold proclamations and bold promises and ridiculous odes about things way far in the future because I'm convinced I'll never have to actually follow through on them. I'm going to get off the hook when Jesus comes back. Now, I don't think as James does that, that either he or Jesus is putting an absolute prohibition on oaths. So 
We're not Amish. We're not Mennonite. Okay? We're not Anabaptists this morning. Scripture never universally condemns taking an oath. In fact, one of the interesting things we see, one of the, one of the people, one of the individuals in Scripture that takes the most oaths is God. God is constantly swearing oaths in Scripture. Promising, committing to do something, to do this or to that. That's what His promises are. They're oaths. I swear by my name, by my character, I will do this and act in this way. In the Old Testament, when it talks about people taking oaths, its concern isn't that they're taking oaths. Its concern is that they would be faithful to the oaths they take. When you promise you're going to do something, when you take an oath saying you will, make sure you follow through. So what is James talking about here? I think the problem is related to two things. First, people are making oaths flippantly. They're making them frequently. They just sort of make an oath about anything. Oh, I, I swear to God I'll do that. I swear to God I'll do that. I swear in my childhood I'll do that. But all sorts of things, they're just flippantly throwing out oaths. And, and that actually reveals a, reveals a bigger problem we'll return to in a second. But the other thing that they're doing is that it, it reveals that they've devised this system. And, and Jesus actually talks about it. It's this system where they've kind of constructed this hierarchy of oaths. And the whole point behind this system they've constructed is there's this hierarchy of oaths they've made where it's like to swear by God is obviously at the top, right? Then at the bottom is you swear by your vacuum cleaner. I don't know. There's like this whole hierarchy. And the point behind it is there's certain oaths that are more important and more significant. You swear by God, you are going to be held accountable to it. But if you swear by your third cousin, maybe you don't like your third cousin that much anyway, might not be that big a deal. That's how Jesus rails against the hypocrisy of this practice. If you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Matthew is drawing our attention. James is drawing our attention to the point Jesus makes. Don't construct some silly system where you can constantly have an out for breaking your word. I, I swore by the, by the screen, but not by the drum set. And the drum set's more sacred. So it doesn't matter. You see how just artificial and weird that is? Now, when I thought of this and I, and I was thinking of it, the issue that he's pointing to and that he's drawing out is that the fact that people are constantly, frequently, flippantly making these oaths says something about the community, doesn't it? What's going on if you have to constantly make an oath? There's a total lack of trust. I can't just believe what you say. I, I have to make sure that you've sworn by something sacred. Otherwise, I'm convinced you're not going to follow through on it. Now, the Metcalfs and the Wassinks might be the only two families in the entire world still watching Survivor. We're actually both Survivor fans. And it made me think of Survivor. Survivor is this show that no one else watches, but we still love, that's all built around, it's this game. And it's, it's about, you know, 
survive, outwit, outlast, you know, all these, all these ideas of how you get to the end to win the prize, to win the million bucks. But to get there, the game has been built around mistrust and sleight of hand and manipulation and treachery. And so it happens almost every episode. Somebody comes to make a deal with somebody else. You know, it's, it's time for, for them to make the vote and cast somebody out. They're going to go to tribal council, they call it. And the person comes up and, okay, here's the deal. If you vote with me, you know, I'll take you to the final three. You promise? I promise. Pinky swear? I pinky swear. Will, will you do the secret handshake to make sure that you'll do it? Yeah, okay. I swear on the, on the head of my children. I would never do that. That's how serious I... But the whole point is underscored. The reason they have to do this is because this whole game is built on the fact that everyone is trying to deceive everyone else. It shouldn't be that way in the body of Christ. Jesus commands us, James commands us, God commands us, stop the stupidity. Instead of constantly swearing oaths and then reneging on them, he calls us to have trustworthy character. Now, he's not saying there's no place for signing a legal document. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying if you go to buy a house and you go and the mortgage broker's like, sign here. You don't have to, ah, I'm sorry. The Bible says, swear no oath. I can't sign my name to that. You can sign a legal document in that context. It makes sense. There's all sorts of places where signing a legal document makes sense. What he's talking about are just these, these totally voluntary oaths that you're just doing to convince somebody that you have integrity. See, look. I swore to God, now you can believe me. The point is you should be so consistent in your honesty and in your truth-telling and your integrity and character that oaths are totally unnecessary. Your integrity should speak for itself. You don't have to take voluntary oaths. You don't, you don't have to swear by God or by heaven, or by earth. You have to swear by your mother's head. Just be honest in your speech. That's his first point, which is actually his last point, but I moved it to the front. The second characteristic he wants us to put on as we prepare for Christ's return. Be trustworthy, but also, and underneath that, and undergirding that call to trustworthiness, is be patient. Go back to the beginning, James 5, 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains? Now, patience is always a virtue, right? Patience is a virtue. That's a little catchphrase we throw out there. But how much more difficult is it to be patient in the midst of adversity? It's it's hard as a parent to be patient with your kids, you know, whether they're a six-month-old infant and just the patience of, please, stop crying, it's 3 a.m. Or the five-year-old. This is the tenth time today I've told you, don't hit your brother. Or the 15, you know, we think of it in that context, it's like, oh, I get patience. Think of patience with an obnoxious coworker. This dude just grates on my nerves. His whole personality is so annoying. Be patient with him. Be kind. How much harder to be patient when someone's attacking you? 
when it's not just an annoyance. It's not just an immature child. It's someone who wants to destroy you. Someone who wants to defraud you. Someone who wants to harm you and your family. That's what James zeroes in on. And he says, be patient, brothers, in the face of oppression, in the face of wicked people prospering at your expense. Be patient. Now, if you're in the midst of suffering, if you've ever been in the midst of a difficulty like that, you ever had somebody come up and say, just be patient. You almost want to slap them in the face. Come on! I'm trying to be patient. What I don't need is you saying, be patient. Believe me, I'm trying. Can't you see I'm being patient? James doesn't need sensitivity training. Those who suffer need perspective. When you get the shaft, you don't want to wait. When someone gets the better of me, or worse, when they take advantage of me or do evil to me, I want justice now. I don't want justice tomorrow. I don't want justice next week. I wanted justice yesterday. James commands patience in a very specific manner. Be patient in the knowledge that God will judge the wicked. And then he kind of adds this. And God will judge the wicked in His time. Listen how Psalm 37 puts the counsel. It's a long psalm. We're just going to zone in on a couple pieces of it. But it's David speaking to a righteous person who's facing suffering, and specifically suffering at the hands of a wicked person. Psalm 37.1 Fret not yourself because of evildoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. Commit yourself to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. David gets right to the heart of how we're tempted in the midst of difficulty. When you see people doing bad stuff and going unpunished, or even worse, people doing duplicitous stuff to you, and they're getting a promotion. They're gaining advantage. They've just destroyed you behind everyone's back. And in public, people just sing their praises. Temptation is to fret. Temptation is to doubt. Temptation is to be impatient for justice. The point David and James are making is that you're fretting, you're pining away, you're pacing in worry and nervousness about what's happening. That does nothing to hasten the demise of the wicked person. The person who's wronged you isn't going to be brought to justice any more quickly because you've worn out the spot in your hallway where you pace up and down worrying about what's happening. What it's doing is just taking your eyes 
away from the source of hope and filling them with despair. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Patience is needed most when life gets tough because of other, pe- other people's evil. We watch them flourish as we flounder. And then James makes a really strange analogy. He says, you need to be like the farmer planting his crops. The farmer works the soil, right? He sows the seed. And then he waits. Now, in Palestine, in, in the place James is writing to, water is scarce. So when he talks about the early rain and the late rain, their seasons are different than ours. The early rain actually comes in autumn, and the late rain comes in spring. And rain means life. Rain means food on the table. And James points out the farmer is patient, and the farmer waits patiently for what only God can bring. He can't do anything to make it rain. It's a reminder to trust in God's sovereign time. So in this sense, patience, as James talks about it, is passive. You're not patient if you're pacing. It's part of what he's saying. You're not patient if you're constantly unearthing the seed to see if it's taken root. No good farmer does that, right? They don't, they don't plant the seed and two months and think, ah, is it starting to germinate? I don't know. I better go back and like dig up one whole row just to check. Maybe I should do some random rows just to make sure I've got a random sampling of whether... Farmers don't do that because they know as soon as you unearth it, you're, you're disrupting the process. You break up the ground, you till the ground, you sow, you plant your seed, you leave it covered, and you wait. You're not patient. This is going to be a hard one. If you're vengeful. Proverbs 20.22, Solomon says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord. And He will deliver you. That's not an easy kind of patience, is it? The kind of patience James describes requires supernatural power. It requires something outside of ourselves. It's not our natural disposition to get slapped in the face and to respond by saying, I will be patient for the Lord to bring justice. You slap me in the face? Doggone it, I'm going to slap you back. Maybe a little more contemporary example. You cut me off on the road? I'm going to honk my horn. And I'm going to keep my hand on that horn for the next quarter mile. So you know, I know what you did. And it was wrong. And this is just a little bit of justice. But God's got more coming. But i got to make sure you know that judgment, that judgment is coming, baby. My, I'm on the horn. i got, I got Toyota. It's an annoying, high-pitched horn. I am on it. Feel a little bit of my vengeance, baby. You ever felt that way? I never have. Listen to how Paul encourages us, how he prays for us. Colossians 1.11 May you be strengthened with all power. You could have a sermon on just that. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. 
for all endurance and patience with joy. You know what Paul's saying? You need God's help for patience. You need to pray for patience. You need God's grace to wait and to trust. But the farmer, while he's passive in one sense, he he can't do anything to really affect the outcome of his crop. He's not totally inactive, and Paul kind of hints at it, and so does James. James in verse 8 says, right after that saying, you know, the farmer waits, he trusts, he he believes the Lord's going to bring the rain. Verse 8 he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know what you can do? Can't do anything about the seed. Can't do anything about that driver who must be from LA. You can establish your heart. I had two grandpas, both farmers, both planted, did this stuff all the time. And by God's grace, they were both examples of this. They lived every year of their lives in faith. We're going to buy seed. We're going to plant that seed. We're going to do everything we're supposed to do to cultivate that seed. And every day we're going to pray. We're going to pray that God will provide. We're going to pray there's not going to be hail. We're going to pray that sufficient rain comes. We're going to pray that there's not an early frost. We're going to pray. We're going to establish our hearts. That's James's counsel. You can't control what evil people do to you. You can't control when Christ is going to return. There's nothing you're going to do that's going to manipulate God and say, well, I didn't realize that was going to happen. Come on, Jesus. Get up. You got to go. Time now. All you can control is how your heart waits. He says you have to establish it. It means you have to strengthen it. You have to set it firmly. It's interesting. The other place, one of the other places this, this verb is used, it talks about Jesus. And it says, He set His face to Jerusalem. So He's going about His ministry. And there's been multiple points where He's resisted going. And He realizes now is the time. He sets His face. He determines in His heart to do the Father's will. That's what James calls you to do. Here's how you establish it. You establish it in the knowledge that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now I read that phrase, chewed on it, I looked at it, I looked up other places where it talked about the coming of the Lord, and I kind of came back to it. I think it's just almost so subtle and obvious you miss it. The coming of the Lord is at hand, is James's way of saying, establish your hearts by strengthening them, by building them, by girding them on God's promises. James isn't saying, as he writes this letter, establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Look, there's a huge storm cloud out in the distance. That's Jesus. He's coming. You can see it. It's not like there's a tremor. 
James picks up the pen and writes the letter. Remember that tremor you guys felt a week ago? That was Jesus getting ready to come. He's saying, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Look to the promises of God. Look at what's happened with Christ's arrival. Turn to God's Word. So, and this is important. Being ready for Christ to return, it's not about watching the news for signs of the Antichrist. If I believed all the forewords in my inbox, and I don't know who sends them or how they get there, the Antichrist has been re-identified like 300 times in the last three years. Some people try to encourage themselves and others that way. By trying to figure out what God specifically says, we won't know. How is he going to return? Like a thief in the night. Unexpectedly. The point isn't whether Russia is doing something new with Syria and Israel. And if you read in Daniel, I, you know, if you translate that through six different languages and then you extrapolate that out, that's clearly Putin. And that's not what he's saying to do. The point is that God has promised and he will act. The promises he made to the prophets are coming about. Patience is about entrusting yourself to God's timing. And the flame of faith is fanned by the promises of God's Word. Listen to how Peter does this. 2 Peter 3.8 But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness but is patient towards you. Go off the notes for a second. I cut it, though, and put it back in. You know what I love about that passage? What's Peter saying? Be encouraged in the midst of suffering. And Peter's letters are all about suffering. Christ is going to return. God will fulfill His promises. And don't think He's being slow. God's timing is different than ours. And then he says a really interesting thing. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. And then he doesn't say... So be patient. What does Peter say? But God is patient toward you. That's a little bit of a perspective shift, right? Why are you taking so long, God? Why aren't you delivering me? Why aren't you bringing justice? Jesus, why aren't you returning? Why aren't you taking this or whatever this is away? Peter kind of says, Trust. Trust in God's timing. And remember, He's the one being patient towards you. He's the one gracious and merciful. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Overlooking generations and decades and centuries and millennia of disobedience as He waits to establish His kingdom. There's a little bit different perspective of patience, right? Then James gives the illustration of the prophets. He says in verse 10, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now that's a loaded example, right? You think it's hard to be patient? Can you imagine if you're the guy 
coming to the people, and, and it's not just like we have today where it's like the subjective sense of the Spirit. I think God wants us to share this. I think this is God's Word for us. These guys, it's like, they have had an encounter. Like Isaiah standing before God, and God says, this is what you're going to say. And it's so authoritative, when you say it, you're going to say, thus says the Lord. What I'm saying carries all of His power and all of His authority. And then they talk about calls to repentance and impending judgment. But don't worry, God's going to judge Assyria. He's going to judge Egypt. He's going to judge Babylon. How hard for them. Like, you're the guy saying it. And then you've got to go back home and sit and wait. Lord, I look like a tool shed. I went in front of the king and his whole court. And I said these things and they thought they were crazy. And I said them because they were your words. When are you going to do it so I don't look stupid? Or you think of how the people responded. You talk about patience in the face of suffering. I love how James puts it. They spoke in the name of the Lord. He says they're an example of suffering and patience. You know who the prophets probably suffered the most from? It's probably not Assyria and Babylon. If you did a study, most of the suffering of God's prophets is at the hands of God's people. Here's a great example, tragic example, Isaiah 30, verse 10. They, God's people, say to the prophets, Give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. We don't care if you make it up. Just make us happy about it. We don't have it in Scripture, but history tells us supposedly Isaiah dies by being cut in half. James' point is that doing God's will often leads to suffering. And that's why you and I need supernatural empowering. We need God's Word. We need the reminder that Paul gives on the heels of his prayer. So, Paul prays for patience and listen to what he says. Colossians 1.11 May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. weight of glory, Paul says, will be worth it. Then James adds, sort of a little tweak on patience, be steadfast. The final attribute. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You can hear how James is bracketing the whole letter, right? Very beginning, Chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life 
which God has promised to those who love him. Now, I think part of what he's doing here is where patience is this posture we have against people who are doing us wrong. Steadfast is a slight tweak. It's a position you take towards hardship generally. It's not going to do any good to be vengeful against the tornado, right? Tornado wipes out your house. Patient for vengeance. I can take vengeance against nature, but I can remain steadfast against the difficulty and suffering of a broken world. And who's the example he uses in your text? Job. He uses Job. And he says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you've seen the purpose of the Lord. That's a really interesting example. First of all, what's our immediate context? Remember last week? He's railing against wealthy people, unbelievers, who do evil against the poor. And it's almost kind of just to kind of pull the rug out from under us, just in case you start thinking, wealthy people are just evil, they're dogs. He goes back to the example of Job, a righteous, wealthy man who suffers. So I think James is intentionally trying to keep us off balance here a little bit. The whole point of the book of Job, though, is to delve into how victims of suffering can still have faith in God, specifically in a God who is sovereign. Can we trust Him? Is He just great in power? Or is He also great and rich in mercy? Now, at first blush, it's almost weird that He uses Job because you see some high points in Job at the very beginning of the letter. You know, Job responds well. And then it's like, okay, that was... Wave one of suffering, and then wave two smashes him, and, and then wave three and four, and the waves just keep pounding. And as the waves pound, you see Job and, and the righteousness of his responses starts to dissipate. It starts to change. Job is not a tidy example for James to use. And that's why he's so helpful. Job doesn't always respond perfectly. At certain points, he questions God's plans. He questions God's wisdom. At other points, he groans under the hardships he experiences. But he's an example because for all those shortcomings, the thing that Job does is he endures. He clings to faith. Even at his most ragged and beaten. Even when he is most raw, he always returns to God in faith and repentance. I think James uses Job to encourage people in the midst of their suffering. Because you can read a passage like this and you're in the midst of suffering, and it's not encouragement, it's like you just got beat upside the head. I know. I, I haven't responded the way I'm supposed to. I know there have been times when I have doubted and I have questioned I know there's times when I have been impatient in the midst of what's happening. I know there's been times when I have felt weak in the midst of year five of this difficulty. I think James is graciously showing us Job. Saying, Job wavered. Job had moments when his knees faltered. But by the grace of God, he endured. He's taking a long view of Job to give grace to those who suffer. 
James says specifically that our steadfastness is fortified when we consider that we have seen the purpose of the Lord in Job's life. In other words, if you just zoom in on one part of Job's story and you don't read the whole thing, you can kind of be left thinking, man, what is going on to this guy? But we've seen the purpose. The things he loses is not the end of the story. And I love how you go to the end of Job. Job has all these encounters with his friends who seem like they're righteous, right? And they're just giving him terrible advice. And then at two points, God speaks to Job. And Job's response, when God finally speaks, shows the source of his steadfastness. He's heard from the Lord. And he doesn't fully understand. And God is not on the hook to fully explain. But Job recognizes God's greatness and his goodness. I put it this way. Job's steadfastness is empowered by God's steadfastness. That's his hope at the end. You have taken everything away. But I believe that you are not just sovereign, you are compassionate. You're not just powerful, you're merciful. Job confesses and repents that his hope was never in his life or his wealth or his family or his health. His hope was in the Lord, whose power and purposes don't fail. And in the end, God rewards those who are steadfast. Fortified. I think that's the point. Almost a double meaning. The word that we translate purpose can be translated a couple ways, and I think James is intentionally leaving ambiguous exactly how he wants us to take it. He wants us to take it and look back at Job and say, see, the end of the story, God delivered him. God rewarded him. I think he also wants us to say, see, there's purpose. There were things that Job didn't see that were going on in this cosmic disagreement and battle between God and the devil that gave purpose to what was happening, even though Job didn't recognize it. It's where Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Finish with a story. Henry Martin, maybe a guy you haven't heard of, he's a young missionary to India. The turn of the 19th century, so 1800s. It's 1806 is when he set sail for India. So you think of what's going on in, in 1806, the kind of ship he's sailing on kind of creature comforts he doesn't have on the boat, and then how those creature comforts are just cut in half once he steps off the boat, right? Well, he leaves for India, and he goes out as a missionary and actually extends his work into Persia and even Arabia. So Iran and out east of there. When he leaves for the mission field, I don't know whether this was wise or not, he leaves his fiancée back at home. 
going to return for her at a later date. He's going to call her to him at a later date. They're going to get married, but he doesn't take her with him. In reality, he's going to die thousands of miles away from the woman he loves, never having actually been brought together in union before God. Now, if you can imagine, so he's on that ship, right? And this isn't like flying a plane. It's, it's a journey by sea. Even the journey itself could mean you die. And you finally get there. And it's just every day is, is kind of stretching out the loneliness he feels. And Martin turned for solace in God's Word. He's on the boat. His journals talk about the way he turns to God's Word to remind him of his calling, why he's doing what he's doing. And then he gets there. And the hardships just start piling up. And the worst hardship he receives when Martin arrives in India is this just devastating, crushing blow from a fellow missionary. Another missionary, this guy's sort of like a veteran missionary, a guy, he probably arrives and thinks, I want this guy to mentor me. Who knows the backstory? This guy is experienced, though. He's well-known. And this guy takes to the pulpit after Martin arrives and he preaches an entire sermon solely for the purpose of slandering Martin. He attacks his motives. He attacks his theology. He attacks all sorts of things. It, it seems in the context that the guy is just massively envious of this gifted young man who's come to India. So, but Martin arrives and, and he's getting just crushed by a fellow co-worker. And, and he's just sort of reeling from it. He's alone in a foreign land. He doesn't have his future bride. And he's facing persecution, not just from the people he's trying to reach out to, from fellow believers. And listen to how he girds up his loins in patient steadfastness. This is from his journal. In the multitude of my troubled thoughts, I still saw that there is a strong consolation in the hope set before me. Let men do their worst. Let me be torn to pieces. And my dear Lydia torn from me. Or let me labor for 50 years amidst scorn. And never seeing one soul converted, still it shall not be worse for my soul in eternity, nor worse for it in time. Though the heathen rage and the English people imagine a vain thing, they think he's just cocking his talent. The Lord Jesus who controls all events is my friend, my master, my God, my all. Martin's strength isn't internal. Everything about what gives him strength and patience and steadfastness a thousand miles away from the woman he loves in a foreign land with a daunting task of translating the New Testament into various languages that never been translated in before, in the face of Christians who are persecuting him, his strength is totally external. You know how I remain patient when I'm slandered? How I'm steadfast when I'm battered? How I gird up my hope in the midst of loneliness? I establish it a million miles down on the bedrock of God's Word. A million miles down on the cornerstone of His promises to me. I don't question His goodness because I see Jesus. And in Jesus, every promise is yes. In 
Jesus, I have hope. In Jesus, I have a future. In Jesus, everything that's happening will be worth it. Martin remains steadfast for six years. He perseveres to translate the New Testament, so he's the first guy doing it, into Urdu, Farsi, and Arabic. Get a sense of why there's maybe a little envy from the other pastor. And he dies at 31, never having seen his fiance again. And I love the epitaph his friend writes. Here Martin lies, in manhood's early bloom, the Christian hero finds a pagan tomb. Religion sorrowing o'er her favorite son points to the glorious trophies that he won. Eternal trophies, not with carnage red, not stained with tears by hapless captives shed, but trophies of the cross for that dear name. Through every form of danger, death, and shame, onward he journeyed to a happier shore where danger, death, and shame assault no more. That's the kind of hope and perspective that protects your patience, that solidifies your endurance and your steadfastness. It's the hope of Psalm 17.6. If you're suffering or preparing for suffering, and you're in one of the two categories, you should be, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. And James says he hears. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. As for me, last verse of the psalm, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. When I awake, every wrong and every trial, every suffering will be forgotten in the satisfaction of seeing Jesus. Would you bow your heads?